Sedaris, go ahead. Love to hear all that conversation. Go ahead and wrap that up. We'll begin our time of teaching here. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to see all your lovely faces on this holiday weekend. It's pretty great. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving and and welcome to Advent, uh, the season of Advent. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're so glad that you're joining us on this morning. And um, yeah, we're leaning into the season of Advent here as a church. So we have this Advent series, this teaching series we're going to do together, uh, which we're really excited about. Um, but we are entitling Changing Expectations, really rooted in this notion. Well, actually, I'm not going to spoil it for you. Let's just call it that for now, and we'll, we'll move forward. But if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. We use that each and every Sunday, and open up to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. I just made my two-year-old uh, start freaking out in the lobby because she wanted to be with me. She's so cute, but she's a two-year-old. So, anyways, um, Genesis chapter 16, and uh, that's where we're going to be working from today, uh, which is at the very beginning of the Bible, so it should be very easy for you to find. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you, or underneath the seat in front of you, uh, close to you. You can pull that out and just open up to chapter 11, or not, page 11, page 11, sorry. Uh, The chapters in the Bible are actually really, really short, just a couple of paragraphs, and so... Chapter 16 is on page 11. It's kind of nice. I remember uh, (laughs) describing that to uh, someone who's newer to Christianity, and I said, hey, you can read the book of of Mark. It's nice. It's great. It's only 16 chapters. And and his eyes just kind of blew up. He was like, I don't know if I have time for 16 chapters. And I said, they're just like a paragraph or two each. And he was like, oh, I can make quick work of this Bible. I said, go for it, man. Go for it. See how you do. But anyways, um, we're in the season of Advent, starting Genesis chapter 16. And to begin today, I want to share a piece of, of mine and Christy's story. Um, Christy is, is my amazing wife that just took our two-year-old away. Uh, we actually uh, met each other and formed a friendship doing a short-term mission trip in Kenya, where we spent our, our summer uh, in between college uh, in Kenya, in the capital of Nairobi. There's the biggest slum in the world there called Kibera. We spent the summer serving in Kibera, bringing the gospel there, bringing other kind of human, humanitarian aid and, and resources to the people there. And then over the course of, of the next year, we uh, did ministry together on the college campus um, in this Christian uh, living house, actually, this Christian living situation, kind of similar to a fraternity, Christian fraternity. I think the UW has one called... 17th Ave House, that might just be solely guys. This was guys and girls in this house. We kind of led and ministered together that year. And then the following summer, we we went to India together, primarily focused in the slums of of Calcutta and and Delhi. It was was very different than an African slum, where there's just like one big slum of one and a half million people. Calcutta has like thousands of slums that compromise six million people or something there. So so we we served together we uh, for over the course of, of over a year, um, and then we didn't talk to each other for like six months. <laughs> we just got back from India, and, and she had to focus on her stuff. I had to focus on, on my stuff, and we didn't talk together for like six months. And then God brought us together again, and, and I, I guess I'll just say just very quickly, uh, our, we formed a, a, a deep relationship, and, and very quickly, I'll just say that that happened. And um, so quickly that about a year and a half later, we were married. We were married. And for that year and a half, most of the time, she was spent in Peru, which is fine. I had, to fin- <laughs> I had to finish up college anyways. I didn't need that distraction, if you know what I mean. No, I'm just kidding. She's great. Um, I had to finish up college, uh, but we had found such a strong friendship on, on the basis of bringing the gospel to places 
that it wasn't, to, to bring the love of Christ to places that it had not yet really been. Um, and, and we had these extensive experiences of working alongside one another, seeing one another at our worst, in the hardest places uh, that a Westerner can be on the, the, the globe. We had discovered a passion in the other that would potentially fuel doing this for a significant part of our lives. And so, um, like going to hard places and, and working there for, for the gospel. We, we really hoped that maybe this is what God is calling us to do, that, that one day, once our studies were completed, we'd go overseas and, and serve in this way. So uh, right after we got married, she pursued a master's degree in international economic and community development. I pursued a master's degree of divinity, which is what pastors get. But I had a focus in intercultural ministry because we were like, we're going to go and bring the gospel and love of Christ and to places that don't have it yet. We told everybody about it. Our friends were aware of it. As Dave and Allie, they knew us at this time went to seminary. Our families were aware of it. In fact, I started working for a church and they offered me a job and I said, you know what? I looked at Hunter, the lead pastor, and I said, you know, I can work for you, that's fine, but in three years, I'm going to Turkey, so I can only give you three years. <laughs> and he said, hey, that's, that's fine with me. That's good enough for me. Come on, let's do it. So I worked there. But, and over the course of these Years went through all the official steps and all the hard work of joining an official Christian sending organization to the Arab world. Um, the trainings, the assessments, um, all of it. We had to fly down to Florida for an orientation of sorts. And so we were just working really hard to get all of this together. And, and over the course of this time, we spent time in Turkey. We spent a summer in Turkey as well, which we love. We love the people, the culture. Mediterranean, like Mediterranean climate isn't all that bad, right? It's pretty nice. <laughs> you know, so we loved Turkey. We really jived in that culture. So we thought, you know what? We're going to go to Turkey. That's what we're going to do. We started telling our friends and family this. And then the time came for us to finally go to Turkey and meet teams in the field that were really eager to add missionaries to their teams. We went there and we met these teams and we felt God saying no. We had no peace about it. No, you, you, this isn't for you. It was very, very strange because we had worked towards this for six, seven years. It's a long time that we had been focused on getting abroad just to arrive there and feel God saying, no, this isn't for you guys. We were confused. We were frustrated. We were uncertain What's next? Isn't this the reason you brought us together, God? We're willing to go places that most people are unwilling to go. We're willing to do that, but, but you don't want us there? What's wrong with us? Why won't you use me? Am I not good enough for you? Our dream was on the brink of death. God's promises to us seemed on the brink of death. I spent a few months in disillusionment. Just disillusionment. That's the best word I can say for it. At best, I was questioning and confused. At worst, I was just in a pit of despair. It was gone. But this isn't just a story that professional Christians have, is it? If you've been a Christian for a while, you will know that these seasons happen in life. But perhaps far more often than we care to admit, where we thought God was promising one set of circumstances, but we saw something else come to pass. Where, where we felt him leading in one direction, where when we walked in that direction, we just experienced a door being slammed in our face. Where we hoped that he would deliver us into some new realm 
only to find that he's actually signed us up for more of the same. Have you experienced this before? What are we to do when we find ourselves in these places? Should we resign, give up? Should we resolve to just go through the motions? What are we to do when following God becomes synonymous with broken dreams, unachieved hopes, unmet expectations? When we have a picture of what following God looks like, that doesn't come to pass. It's taken away from us. And this is why we've come to Genesis chapter 16. This is the story of Hagar. Of Hagar. Which, for those of you who know the Bible, it might seem like a pretty strange place to come to, actually, to answer this question. When the other biblical authors talk about Hagar, it's typically not in a very positive light. So Hagar is going to, she's the mother of Ishmael, who's going to be the father of a a nation to come that is going to struggle with the nation of the Israelites time and time and time. Again, they're enemies in several points. Um, In in the New Testament, Paul, in in Galatians chapter 4, he speaks of of Hagar um, as representing um, slavery, as, as representing a life lived under the slavery of the law, contrasting her with Sarah, who's representing life lived under the freedom of Christ. What's going on here? Can we really take anything away from, from Hagar? And I want to say that we can. We, we can. After all, even Paul in Galatians chapter 4 that I just pointed to, is he makes very clear when he begins his discussion on Hagar, hey, I'm talking figuratively here, which is to say I'm allegorizing some high-level stuff based on just the overarching situation that has nothing to do with her practical day-to-day life that she's lived and experienced. Okay, so, so Paul's just allegorizing and speaking figuratively, which is good, and his conclusions are right and true, but we're going to look at the day-to-day practical experiences of Hagar here. Because when we do that, Hagar of Genesis chapter 16, chapter 21, when you do that, when you suspend your knowledge of how the rest of the story goes, which is how the scriptures are, most of them are meant to be read as, as literature, as, as a story, as, as narrative, suspending your idea of, of the, the notion of how you know it ends up, even though you've read it before, which is exactly how one of Dave and I's seminary professors said you're supposed to read the Bible. He said, read, it, read a lot of this narrative. Read it like Charles Dickens. Stop reading it so scientifically and, and calculating. It's literature. Let it be God's literature to you. When you do that, we discover some remarkable things about Hagar's experience of following God in the midst of, hope, of, of broken hopes and dreams. And, and so the, we're in the book of Genesis. It's 50 short chapters, and it covers everything from the creation of the universe to Adam and Eve to their kids to their descendants to the Noah and the flood to their descendants to the Tower of Babel to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives to Jacob's 12 sons and all their shenanigans that get them all the way down into Egypt. 50 short chapters. Hagar gets two of them. Almost two of them. She doesn't get all of chapter 21, but pretty much most of it. So that is disproportionate. That's what we call disproportionate. She's weighted in Genesis. She's weighted in here. And so perhaps she's not just a side story. Perhaps something central lives in her story. 
And so like I mentioned, it's, her story is in chapter 16 and 21. There are two disjointed kind of chapters in this book of Genesis. And I like that way because there are two experiences that she has that, that are gapped by 14, 15 years. 14 or 15 years, okay? And so we're going to just walk through each one of these, and I'll provide you the spark notes in between. Um, spark notes is still a thing. I looked it up this week. It is still a thing, uh, although I doubt it's with the prominence of what it once was back in my day, you know? Nowadays, you just type anything into YouTube, and they'll tell you all about, you know, the great Gatsby, for instance. So, um, so, uh, so let's pick it up together at the beginning of chapter 16, <clears throat> which goes like this. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she had owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I could build my family. And Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So Abraham's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for 10 years. Okay, zero to 60 here, okay? This is, this is a lot has just happened. Let me provide a little backstory here to give you a little bit of context of what's going on that's brought us up to this point. So one day, Abraham received a promise, or Abram, he's, his name hasn't been changed to Abraham yet. Abram received a promise from God out of the blue that's recorded at the beginning of chapter 12. You can flip over there one page with me. It goes like this. So no context before this. God just shows up and says this. This is, how, this is what happens. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Wow, we say. Wow, what an incredible promise of God. This is going to be great. And, and so Abraham, Abram must have been a pretty great guy for God to pick this guy. He must come from pretty good stock. If God's going to make a whole line of descendants for him, what we're going to find out in the following pages here is that they're going to be too numerous for him to count. That, that God must have called this guy because he has a great marriage, right? Great family, great marriage. Nope, actually not. As we read on in these paragraphs between chapter 12 and chapter 16, they have some marriage difficulties. A lot of them. Big ones. Boulders. Sarah, Sarah is, is barren. She can't have children. Abraham, Abram is pretty anxious to claim Sarah as his wife as they encounter other nations. Um, and so um, he keeps letting kings take her as their concubine wife. Yikes. That's, that's not good. So, so they have a pretty rough marriage. Um, and, and here, after 10 years of barrenness, of Sarai being concubine wife here and there, living in the land that God told them to live in, Sarai, she's ready to give up on the promise that was to be fulfilled through her. Although, to be fair, up to this point in chapter 16, God hasn't made clear that this is going to happen through Sarai. She's just Abram's wife, God hasn't made clear that, that this offspring would come through her. She probably carried all sorts of uncertainty and perhaps even shame surrounding her inability to have children. It must have been crushing for her. Perhaps she even felt like she was getting in the way of God's promise for the entire world. Can, can you imagine that weight? Can you imagine that weight? 
So what did she do? It says she took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to Abraham. She took Hagar and gave her to Abram as a concubine wife. Someone to have kids with, which is a common practice in the day. Now, up to this point in the narrative, we've already seen these two Hebrew verbs surface together in an interaction between a married couple. If you read Genesis as literature, you can pick up on it very, very quickly. Can, can anyone name it? Can anyone name it? These two Hebrew words, and a married couple took and gave. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit, she ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. This is Adam and Eve. This is Adam and Eve. This is Genesis chapter 3, just 13 short chapters ago. And so our, our author, our narrator here is being very, very clear. This is sinful. This is sinful. Concubine wives are sinful. Sometimes this is like debated in, in Christian circles. I, I remember in college being with me and my buddies, we're like, wait, hold on a sec here. Are concubine wives sinful? Like Hebrew kings had them a lot. It doesn't seem to be like specifically called out. Like is polygamy okay in the Old Testament, but just not okay? When did that happen? No, no, it's, it's sinful. The way that the Hebrews leaned into this over the course of their history was, was sinful. And, and the biblical authors, while they may not have made it explicitly clear. They leave little Easter eggs like this for us. At several points in the Old Testament that point to like, oof, this is really overstepping God's hope for marriage. That's clearly outlined in Genesis chapter 2. So what happened next? Verse 4. Abram slept with Hagar. She became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her, her mistress Sarai became contemptible to her. Now, there's a little bit of passive voice here in the English, so it's difficult to know who's contemptible to who and what that means, but it's clear in the Hebrew that Sarai has become contemptible to Hagar, meaning that Hagar is pregnant and is now despising Sarai in some way. Now, why would she do this? Why would she do this? Well, it's actually not all that surprising. Um, consider a, a similar situation I've had several conversations with many of you where, where you were lamenting because of the increase in responsibilities at work because you were asked to fill in for the manager role, whether to fill a vacancy while your employer looked for someone else or to cover your own manager's three to six month paternity or maternity leave, or you were invited to fill the role for six months or a time just to see if it was something that you might consider doing indefinitely. And I usually ask, did they start paying you more for that? <laughs> And, anyone, and everyone has always said, no, they haven't. And you're a little salty about it. And reasonably so, understandably so. Now, Abram and Sarai have done something similar. They have significantly increased Hagar's responsibilities with no increase in pay, no increase in recognition, no increase in status. Not to mention that childbirth meant risking death in antiquity. It's estimated that something like 5% of women would die in childbirth. But Hagar is still Sarah's personal assistant at her beck and call, and she is still required to do whatever Sarah asked of her. We don't know exactly what took place, but Hagar rebelled under Sarai in these circumstances. She rebelled. What happened then? Verse 5. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. 
Abram replied to Sarai, Here, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. The angel of... Uh, that she ran away from her. Okay. All right. So, so Sarah's sin of not trusting God to fulfill his promise to Abram through her has led to Abram's sin of making a child with Hagar, which has led to Hagar's sin of rebellion, which has led to Sarah's sin of mistreating Hagar. No one looks all that good here. Probably Hagar looks best, but this is how sin works. This is just how sin works, which is to say, without repentance, sin begets sin. Sin just leads to more sin unless it's recognized as sin, renounced as sin, or, or confessed, and turned away from. From one person to another, sin inspires sin. So we have this awful, soapy, tangled, sinful love triangle drama happening here in the plains of Canaan. You know, some 1,800 years or so before Christ. So what does Hagar do? She runs away. She ran away. And in her running away, she encountered a person and she had a conversation with them. What was that conversation? What did it look like? Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. The angel of Yahweh said to her, Go back to your mistress. Whenever you see Lord in all caps, L-O-R-D, it's the, it's the formal name of God that the Hebrews had, Yahweh. Go back to your mistress, he says, and submit to her authority. The angel of Yahweh said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of Yahweh said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for Yahweh has heard your cry of affliction. This man, he'll be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near, near all of his relatives. So she named Yahweh who spoke to her. You are El Roy. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? That is why the well is called Bir Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Ishmael means God's tears. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Wow. So what happened? Okay, so she runs away and the angel of Yahweh appeared to her and had a conversation with her in her pain and in her turmoil. Who is this angel of the Lord? This is actually the first time we're going to encounter this figure in all the scriptures. Who is he? Uh, but this angel of the Lord, we're going to find out as we keep reading, is this enigmatic figure in the Old Testament who occasionally shows up and often speaks in the first person as God, like he does here. And, and people who see him recognize him as God and call him God, as Hagar does here. And, and the narrator references him as God, as our narrator does here. So we hear, this is fascinating, this is incredible, like God has come down, God has come down to a maltreated Egyptian slave girl to have a conversation with her and comfort her in her disillusionment, in her despair, and even in her own rebellion. Wow. Wow. In all other religions, who does God or the gods appear to? The righteous. The high, the lofty, 
the rich, the religious, the philosophical and enlightened, the intelligent rulers and leaders. That's who, but not the God of these scriptures. The God of these scriptures appears to comfort the imperfect, the low, the have-nots, the nothings of this world, the Hagar's. Incredible. The angel of the Lord comes down to very few people throughout the course of the scriptures here. He's only mentioned only 48 times, 48 times, four of which are right here in this passage. And Hagar is the first woman to receive a birth annunciation in the scriptures. She's the first woman to receive a heavenly messenger announcing that she will have a baby and what to name him. Ishmael, which means God hears. Now, does this remind you of anyone else in the scriptures that we come across? Anybody? Come on, guys. Mary. It's the Christmas season. Mary. Mary gets a birth annunciation of the Lord himself coming into her womb. <laughs> it's incredible. What privilege here does this lowly Egyptian maltreated and even semi-rebellious slave girl get herself? Wow. And what does Hagar conclude from this conversation with God? She says, you're the God that sees me. And her, her baby's name is to be Ishmael, which means God who hears. That in the midst of all of this sin, all of this defilement, all this pride and, and mistreatment, there's a God who hears her. There is a God who sees her. There is a God who's in control and promising to act to deliver her from the entire situation. To turn a slave girl into the mother of a nation. To take the the rough, terrible circumstances she's been thrust into and turn it into a story about his faithfulness, his protection, and his blessing. Now, she has to go back and make up with Sarai. She has to listen. She has to resolve to no longer view Sarai with contempt. But God heard this exploited Egyptian servant girl. He saw her in her distress and her pain, and he looked past all of it to give her hope when she needed it most. And she trusted him and decided to follow him. Now, is this not what God does? Haven't you experienced this before? If you're a Christian, you have. You have when you experience this love, hearing, loving, hearing, seeing, knowing, promising God. And you decide to trust him at his word and follow him. If you're a Christian, you've experienced this. Now, all of this sets the scene for what's going to take place 13 or 14 or so years later in chapter 21. Okay, so here are those spark notes for the chapters in between. Um, Abram, Sarah, and Hagar, they raise Ishmael together. Uh, God shows up and explicitly promises a child that will come through Sarai and changes her name to Sarah and Abram's name to Abraham. And Abraham gives Sarah to a foreign king again to be his concubine. Uh, But all that gets straightened out. And then this happens in chapter 21. 21. So the Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time, God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Wow. 
Sarah said, God has made me laugh and everyone who hears me will laugh with me. She also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. Now the child grew and was weaned and Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. All right, so now we've, we've completed our gap and the event on the other side of these 14 or 15 years is this weaning ceremony that Abraham is throwing for Isaac. When Isaac had come to age uh, and, and stopped drinking breast milk from his mother to around one or two years old, we guess here is this feast that's going to take place. What happens at this feast? Verse 9. But Sarah saw the son mocking the one Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, Drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. So Ishmael is mocking Isaac. Uh, we're not sure exactly what this was, but in some way Ishmael was publicly dishonoring little one or two-year-old Isaac, which honestly I get. Two-year-olds can be annoying, okay? But, but what happens next? What happens next? What happens next? Verse 11. This was very distressing to Abraham because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her. It's gotten him in trouble before. Because your offspring will be traced through Isaac, and I will also make a nation of the slave's son, because he is your offspring. Early in the morning, Abraham got up, took bread and a water skin, and put them on Hagar's shoulders, and sent her and the boy away. She left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, this phrase, he put the, 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 uh, the wineskin on Hagar's shoulders, is really meant to be contrasted with the shoulders of a livestock. Because whenever you put something that a livestock would carry, you'd say you put it on the livestock's shoulders. And so this is being contrasted with Hagar's shoulders, really just to show how stingy Abraham is being here. He could have given her livestock and enough rations that, that you would need livestock in order to carry it. But he didn't. He gave her just the clothes on her back, just a, just a wineskin to carry on her own shoulders. Only the amount of rations that she herself could carry and then scooted her out the door into the wilderness. It's pretty stingy of Abraham. Perhaps, I suppose you could interpret it as Abraham being very trusting of the Lord's promise, saying, I'm going to make a great nation out of her, so just do whatever your wife tells you. Maybe this is Sarah's idea, but, but whatever it is, Abraham and Sarah brought this slave into their family, made her have their kid, and now that they have their own kid, they've kicked her out for something her teenage son did. This is absolutely terrible. This is absolutely terrible. What happens in the wilderness for Hagar? When the water and the skin was gone, she left the boy under one of the bushes and went and sat at a distance, about a bow shot away, for she said, I can't bear to watch the boy die. While she sat at a distance, she wept loudly. I'm not sure if you've been on a hike without water, but even that doesn't compare to being in the ancient wilderness of Canaan without water. Can you imagine the distress, the panic that would set in, the reality of death that's creeping in for her and her son as they wander around trying to find something to drink? It's agonizing. It's completely agonizing. And then her son collapses probably from exhaustion, dehydration, despair. I don't know. He collapses and starts crying. This 14 or 15-year-old old boy, she leaves under the bush and says, I can't bear to watch. Now remember back to the end of chapter 16. 
She had trusted God. She had decided to follow him. She had received promises from God and she obeyed and she followed God. And look at where it got her and her son on the brink of death by dehydration in the wilderness. I've been there. Recall my story from earlier. I followed God wholeheartedly. I prioritized his purposes and plans in the world. I waited patiently for his timing, only for that timing to come and a door to be shut in my face. The, the disillusionment. Is following God going to lead to being abandoned in a desert to die of thirst? I thought following God was where he saved me and I respond with offering my life to him to use for his purposes and then he would make those purposes clear to me. But that didn't happen. If this is what it means to follow you, God, I guess I'd missed the point. I, I guess I just completely missed it. What now? Have you been there? Are you there right now? Have you latched onto the promises of God, but feel like he's letting you fall by the wayside? Have you followed him, but feel like he hasn't given you any clarity on where to go, on what to do? Have you obeyed him, but, but your life's getting harder? Have you listened to him, but feel altogether abandoned and alone? If that's your experience of following God, look at the scriptures. You're not alone. This is exactly where Hagar is. I followed you, God. I trusted you, God. I latched on to you. I listened to you. I obeyed to you. And now I'm in a desert dying of thirst. And as we read through the scripture, we'll find figure after figure after figure have a similar experience of God. I followed you and you hung me out to dry. And here's the question. What do you need most in those moments? What do you need? Is it a comforting word? Is it guidance or direction? Is it clarity? Is it a reminder of God's promises? Is it God to intervene? Is it to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps? What do you really need? It's really, really difficult to discern your own need in despairing and disillusionment. Okay, like it's very difficult to know exactly what, you're, what you need. But Hagar's story gives us an answer because God is going to show up to her again and give her what she needs needs. Verse 17. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid, for God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. Get up, help the boy, and grasp his hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw well. So she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink God was with the boy and he grew. He settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. What did Hagar need most? It wasn't a comforting word, although God gave her that. It wasn't guidance, although she got that too. It wasn't a reminder of God's promise, although he did that for her too. What she needed most is right at the beginning of verse 19. It says, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well. She was about to die of dehydration. What did she need most? Water. How could she find it? Only if God opened her eyes. It's so interesting that after God's comfort, after his guidance, after his reminder of his promise, that the text doesn't say, and that enabled her to open her eyes. No. No. That wasn't enough. 
When you're in despair, you don't just need comfort. You don't just need guidance. You don't just need reassurance. You need God to act, to open your eyes. God opened her eyes. Do you see the wordplay that's inherent in her story here? The first time she ran away, she discovers the God who sees her. And now her son collapses and is crying and, and lamenting the fact that they're about to die. And she says what? She says, I can't bear to open my, I can't watch the boy die. I can't bear to watch it. So she, so she abandons him, walks away, sits down and closes her eyes. And the God who sees her, the God who loves her, opens her eyes so that she can see the well that's right next to her. It was right there the whole time. All this despair and disillusionment and confusion and angst and resolution to give up and cash it in, all happening right next to the life that she needed. She needed God to open her eyes. We need God to open our eyes like Hagar. Why? Because like Hagar, your trust in God and your pursuit to follow him, while it's good, it's faithful, it's true, you, like Hagar, have imagined what it will lead to in your life. You have. It's, it's not entirely your fault. We are intrinsically hopeful beings. We imagine a set of future circumstances based on our present conditions. It's, it's only natural. You have imagined what the promises of God will produce in your life. You have whether it's a set of events, a state of affairs, a relationship, success, so on and so You've imagined what following God will produce and yield for you. You can't help but do it. And this is exactly what Hagar must have done. Without a doubt, after experiencing this hearing, seeing, promising, loving God in the wilderness the first time, Hagar had begun to imagine how the promises of God would be played out in her life. And without a doubt that she thought that her son's greatness would come about by what? By staying connected to Abraham and his wealth and prosperity. Not by being cut off from it with just, a, uh, with just as the clothes on her back. Her future hopes, dreams, her future expectations were crushed. The promise of of this nation to come from her son was dying under a bush 30 yards away from her. You see, we can take the seed of a promise, like mine to help the nations consider Jesus, and we can naturally draw a picture for what plant it will grow up into. But here's the problem. We're not spiritual botanists. We get it completely wrong. We need God to open our eyes. Now extrapolate this to the entire nation of Israel. As they waited for the seed promise, the seed of this coming Messiah that, that is, is promised in the scriptures and God's word given to Israel that a Messiah would come, this seed promise, they imagined and envisioned him as an opulent, conquering king. But the, clan, the, the, the plant that grew up to fulfill that seed promise was a poor baby born in a stable seemingly out of wedlock. He would need, he, he, he's going to live his life as a mere carpenter? And he had no interest in raising a sword, much less in assuming a human throne. Israel needed God to open their eyes. And you know what? For a few of them, he did. This is what John says in his gospel. In John chapter 1, he's 
Listen for it. Listen for it. He's going to say, we needed God to open our eyes to, to actually see this Messiah for who he was. John chapter 1, starting in verse 10. John says, he was in the world, that is, the Christ, the Word. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. Oh, they needed their eyes opened. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Oh, they can't see him. But all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we what? We observed his glory. We saw it. God opened our eyes. The glory is the one and the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Sure, we might say. If Jesus was here, I could see him. It would be great to follow him, and I would. I would do that. And perhaps you would. But we don't have that opportunity. Which is why we're in the account of Hagar. Because you know what? She didn't either. She didn't either. So how do we know when God has opened our eyes. Well, I want to suggest that it's when we see what Hagar saw, a well, a well. She saw a well. She saw a source of life, not something that would give her life in the moment just once to get through, but a continual source of life, one that she could go back to over and over and over, an ongoing source of life. In fact, this well was such a source of life for Hagar and Ishmael that what does it say they did? They settled there. They settled there. They settled there in the wilderness because of this well. When Christy and I were confused and disillusioned all those years ago, God opened our eyes. He opened our eyes to a well. Well, it was more like a well project than a project we had been involved with by way of prayer and, and our giving since its inception. But he opened our eyes to a, well, or to a well project that was digging down, trying to find living water so that they could give it to others. A well that might, might be there continually for others so that when, when others were in their spiritual dehydration and death, crying out to God like Hagar did here, he could open their eyes to a place right next to them where they could find living water. The gospel of Jesus Christ, not just once, but continually. And it would be so impactful that they might even settle next to it. We often use the metaphor of a well as a church here at Sedaris. It's a project that a handful of people started eight plus years ago. They started digging. They started digging. Seeing if they could tap into the living water. Some were quickly fatigued and disenchanted and gave up, but some persisted. They dug and dug and dug, and do you know what? They found water, and God opened up more and more of people's eyes to the well of Sedaris Church, and they came, and those who came worked hard to shore up the walls of the well so it wouldn't collapse in on itself and die so that it could be a place where people could continually find living water for decades to come. They settled next to it. The life that you're finding here today is credited to their hard work in completing this well project. Hundreds of people 
have contributed to the well project that is Sedaris Church. And we are here experiencing life today because of their work years ago. God opening our eyes to the well of his church might just be our most fundamental spiritual need. Might just be our most fundamental spiritual need. You might say, wait, isn't our more basic spiritual need to to see how we're spiritually dead? And and sure, God opens people's eyes to that too. Uh, But he doesn't stop there. This God, our God, not only opens people's eyes to the problem, but where they can find the solution, where they can find the remedy, the well. The well that houses and guards and and protects and articulates and embodies the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's church is that which he uses to continually remedy the spiritual death of the world. And people need their eyes opened to that. And the sad part is that many, many, many Christians go through their entire lives with their eyes closed to it. Ask Pastor Dave. He grew up in the church. Ask Pastor Dave about when God opened his eyes to the reality that the church is God's solution, God's remedy to spiritual death in the world. Ask him when God truly opened his eyes to that. He was already in seminary. He was already in his late 20s. Some of you are here, perhaps for the first time, or perhaps you've been coming for a long time. But God hasn't quite opened your eyes to the continual life-giving reality that the church is as we encourage and point one another to Christ. And that's okay. That's okay. Just admitting that that's okay, that's just a reality, that just is, that's part of what we exist here at Sedaris to do, is allow you the freedom to be able to say that free of judgment and shame. But, But would you dare pray a courageous prayer with me today and ask God to open your eyes to the life It's right next to you. You might be here in spiritual darkness and and, and dehydration and, and, and panic, even if you've followed and trusted God like Hagar did. Maybe you need your eyes open to the well that's right here in your midst. Would you pray that prayer? Now, Many of you here would say, oh, wow, my eyes are open. This is the community of Christ. That's the well, his church. That's how God extends life. To me, I'm experiencing it, and it's amazing. Praise God. You have a new enthusiasm for it. Some of the funnest conversations that we have with people who are with people who have recently had their eyes open to the church. They say, I was going to another church, but, but it wasn't doing it for me. It wasn't doing it for me. Oh, but then I came here, and I found, oh, my goodness. That well I was at before, that well had run dry. That that well had run dry. And it pains me to say it, but we see it more and more frequently. There's lots of wells in the world that have no living water in them. But if your eyes have been opened to the reality of well, praise God. And here are a couple things for you. First, invite the spiritually dehydrated to consider Jesus here at this well. They might be going to one of those wells that doesn't have living water. But, but when your, your friend or your coworker alludes to their spiritual dehydration, now they're not going to use that term. They're going to use other words for it, like, like numbness and, and addiction or anxiety or, or depression, you know, just like the Seattle angst. Ask them if they've considered Jesus. 
Now, you don't have to answer all their questions. In fact, you probably can't answer all their questions. That's okay. But you can offer them the invitation to the well. Hey, I found a place where there's life. Come and see. Come and see. That's the invitation. And that's not just the Sunday morning expression of Sedaris either. It's any gathering of our people in any space. It's, it's having them over for dinner at your house. It's, it's going out to happy hour or dinner in the city with friends. It's inviting them to cohort or to cadre or, or any of our church events. But it also includes the Sunday morning as well. Come and see. I found a place where there's life. I found water. Come and see. Second, the second thing you can do is you can lean into meaningful and intentional participation at the well. The well is not just a place where the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed. It's a place where the gospel of Jesus is also experienced and embodied. I just want to pick up on this because I just briefly mentioned it. It was just a phrase earlier. I want to dive down into that now here because it's so, so, so crucial. The living water at the well is not just the gospel of Jesus Christ and its articulation. We guard it, we protect it, we understand it, we articulate it at the well, yes, but we also embody it and experience it. And that can only happen if we let the love of Christ and his gospel work through us to die to ourselves so that we might love one another and encourage one another and forgive one another. If we take serious the gifts that God has given us, uh, recognizing that he gave them to us so that we might build one another up, that we might strengthen and encourage one another to do everything that God has tasked them with in the world. Okay, so, so this could be in very tangible ways, like, like serving at the church, but it's also deeply relational. You need to find deeply relational ways to know others and be known by others, and not just a few others, but as many people as possible, because that's what Jesus did. You read the Gospels. He's trouncing all over the Israeli countryside. He's going in all sorts of people's houses. Sure, he had the 12 that he was with a lot, but he was everywhere with everyone three years, lamenting together, celebrating together, pointing one another towards Christ. That's what we do here at the well. Now, I don't know where you're at today. I'm not sure how you've imagined the spiritual promises of God materializing in your life, where they would take you or what they would lead to or or how you may feel like they're letting you down. You may maybe even join this well project at Sedaris with hopes, dreams, aspirations, and expectations of what God would do through it that haven't materialized. I get that. I, I have those too. Believe me, I have those too. But will you agree with me that we're not the best spiritual botanists? Only God is. Will you return with me to the seed promise of God's church to be the body of Christ, a city on a hill for all to see and let God grow it into what he wants it to look like, not necessarily what we want it to look like? Would you let God have his desire with our community instead of you getting your desires met by our community? I don't know what it's going to look like. We have the seed promises, and we're seeing him do more and more in our midst. We're getting more and more of, of a plan of what this, this, this grown-up plant of, of Sedaris Church is looking like. But I don't know what it's going to ultimately look like. 
What I do know is that we follow a God who opens people's eyes to his church. I do know that. We have seen that over and over and over, almost weekly. What I do know is that we follow a God who will open our eyes if we ask him. What I do know is that God has compelled many to construct this well so that I could find life, so that you could find life, and and so that people who aren't here yet could find it as well. And I know that if in, in your confusion and disillusionment, in your spiritual darkness and searching, if you throw your efforts into the community of Jesus' local church, you won't be ultimately disappointed. You won't be. What I do know is that here, you will find a God who loves you and holds you and who serves you through his people. And while this work isn't easy, I'm certain you will not regret it. You will look back on this work ultimately and say, man, that was worth every ounce of my energy. I don't know what brought you here, but like Hagar, it's time to forget about what's behind the past and reach forward to what's ahead and press on towards the goals of knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection and sharing with him in his suffering. That comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 3. That's what Hagar had to do. She had to forget everything that was behind in that moment when her eyes were open. And she had to look forward towards the goal of what was ahead. This promise that she had received. And she had been given everything from God in order to achieve it. She had had her eyes opened to a well. Ask God to open your eyes to a well. So that you might Press on towards, towards it. And when you do that, you will find a true meaning and purpose like you never found before. It's there that you're going to find after a while that all the future imaginations that we had about our silly little kingdoms will fade away and be replaced by something far weightier and far precious. His kingdom. So let's do that together. Let's pray.